0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Abundantly Curious. Our guest today is actually someone that I met a few weeks ago, and I was so intrigued by the variety of things that he is good at and great at. I'm talking all across the board. He has so many different skills. A lot of times we see things all around us that we desire, and it stays in that place of desire. And yet this guest goes out and creates all of it. Stick around to hear our guest talk about how you can acquire new skills that may seem insurmountable, like there's a huge gap from point A to point B. I really loved how he broke it down. He also talks about the importance of the power of belief and the roles that data and technology can play and us getting to know ourselves better and optimize our mental and physical performance. Before we dive in, I'd like to welcome you to the Abundantly Curious Podcast, where we aim to spark curiosity, ignite inspiration, and open your mind to expand into possibility. Each week, we'll sit down with experts to dive headfirst into the magical, mysterious, and awe-inspiring elements of our world, with a focus on topics found at the intersection of science, spirituality, and self-help. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting subscribe now and joining our email list at the link in our show description and show notes. So today our guest is the multifaceted Clayton Kim, who spends every day making learning his superpower. Clayton is a self-taught coder, photographer, chef, and derivatives algorithms developer, he has competed and performed in boxing, powerlifting, rugby, aerial straps, and this thing called the Wheel, which we're going to get to later, and is always looking for a new skill to learn. As if that wasn't cool enough, Clayton is also the COO and head of product at Fount, where he builds teams to solve hard problems. His work also includes artificial intelligence and machine learning efforts, which he's led at Boston Consulting Group and Wayfair. When I met Clayton a few weeks ago, I was really blown away by his passion for exploration and this desire for understanding. And that's part of why I wanted to have him on the show today. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for being here, Clayton.
1: Yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks.
0: So just from the bio I read, your journey is clearly so rich. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and the journey that you've been on that got you here today.
1: Sure. I mean, I wasn't athletic as a kid. I actually grew up as this kind of like chubby, nerdy Asian kid. Um, and at some point, I think in high school, I'd like discovered sports and I discovered like not only is it you know fun and competitive, but that there's like an inherent structure to it that like becoming good at something doesn't require like a ton of inherent talent. And if you're able to break it down into small chunks that are independently practicable, and you can master those building blocks, like you can learn to do anything. So, like I somehow went from you know boxing in college to my first job out of college was actually in marketing. But at the same time, I was like trying to become a pro fighter. Um, eventually, I got into a car accident. That whole career ended. But I ended up in law school, and. Uh, did very well in law school, had a great job lined up, and realized like I want to do something creative with my time. I like innovation, I like inventing new things, and I like pushing performance. And I don't know how much you know about the legal field, but it's something that very much discourages innovation. Mm. I was working for this federal judge that told me, like you don't belong in law, you're far too creative. And creative (laughs) lawyers end up in jail.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) Which is is true, it's like a creative accountant, they like, will toe the line a little bit too much. But from there, I discovered what it takes to learn any new discipline, whether that's something that's physical, like cooking, or like um, voice lessons, um, like speech coaching, coding, all of these things. You know, when you're at the base of the mountain, it looks insurmountable. But if you know that you just need to take the right steps along the way, And you have the right guide, all things are pretty learnable. Mm. When I started my journey in circus, I remember very distinctly, I was sitting in the audience at the Cirque du Soleil show, uh, Lucia in Boston. And I saw the straps act. I was like, I want to do that. But I had no idea how to get from where I was sitting in that chair to like up there in the sky. Mm. But I found a coach and with him, I figured out like, you know, what is the broad range of skills that i would need to learn what are the different strength domains what are the different components of this discipline and then from there i found the ways of like practicing each of those individually breaking it down to the even smaller sub skills figuring out the progressions and then now not to toot my own horn but like i would say that i'm pretty good at these things by now
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about the skills and the things that you're doing and the circus work? Because I see you on Instagram all the time with, am I saying it right, the sear wheel? Uh, Sear wheel. Sear wheel, yeah. Yeah. Can you explain for the audience what these things are and how you have started to master them?
1: Yeah, Um, well, some of them did require some coaching. So I have an amazing straps coach. And actually, sear wheel and straps, I think, highlights two very different methods of learning. Where for straps, I had this amazing coach, Aaron and uh, my first coach, um, Alex, who was able to give me this broad sense of like, okay, these are all the different sub-disciplines within straps, whether that's spinning skills, swinging dynamics, strength and static skills, um, understrap, so hanging skills versus overstrap skills. And then within each one of those... Aaron was really good about giving me a progression. So like starting with a two-handed iteration and then moving one hand slightly further down and down and replacing that with a with a light band versus a counterweight and then eventually going to a spinning-based one and then going to like a pure static strength thing. And so all of these things have a natural progression to them that like as long as you're like working along the way, you can get. Meanwhile, my serial training was the complete opposite. I bought that thing during COVID just thinking like, I could figure this out. Like, how hard could it possibly be? And the answer is incredibly hard. (laughs) (laughs) And most of my training now is like, I will see something cool on Instagram, and then I will throw myself at it, just bashing my head against the wall until I figure it out. But then (laughs) along the way, you learn a lot of those foundations of like, okay, what does it take to balance in a center spin so that I could do these cool skills? What is the natural progression of things? So finding those progressions for myself was both really rewarding and like kind of necessary to learning this this incredibly difficult skill set like i somehow chose two of the hardest disciplines within circus um but it seems to work out
0: what i love about this is that in my coaching practice for business and life people will come and they'll they'll have a similar path laid out. Like, I know what I want to go from A to B, but I have no idea how I want to get there. And there's fears of risk involved, right? And yeah. a lot of times those risks are a little bit more in our heads, a fear of failure, fear of judgment, fear of these other things. But for you, with these specific apparatus, there is a little bit more of a risk, right? You're in the center of a wheel going around with your fingers that could get caught under something and your feet all over the place. What has that experience been like in overcoming the fear part of the skill acquisition?
1: So in my coaching, I tell people the same thing always, and that the price of any new skill is your ego. And you have to be willing to take a few tumbles and suck at something for a while if you want to obtain something that other people don't. Because your ability to overcome that suck is, you know, what determines if you're able to learn that skill or not. And so anytime anyone says, I'm not good at math, what I'm hearing is, like, I don't like the way that not being good at math makes me feel. Mm. Yeah. Right? And so with Steer Wheel, there's an added Element of danger because that's like a fifty-pound s- circle of metal that's swinging with a ton of kinetic energy. So, like, the finger thing is actually fine. It only takes one instance to learn that you will crush your fingers, and once you do, you will never do it again. <laughs> it's like a single trial learning. You crush your fingers once, and they're like, okay, cool. We'll never do that again. The more terrifying thing is when you fall and the wheel bounces up. There's enough kinetic energy there, energy there to like shatter bones. <gasps> And so you learn very quickly to move out of the way or maintain control of the wheel. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the things I learned in other disciplines come up in really unexpected ways, like the style of linear progression that I learned, or progressive overload and periodization that I learned in powerlifting comes really in handy for structuring my straps training. Mm-hmm. My ability to reflexively tuck my chin in when I fall uh, from rugby, so you get hit and you learn to not catch yourself because you're going to shatter your wrists on the ground, and you learn to tuck your chin so that you don't get a massive concussion, that has saved my life multiple times mm. falling off the seer wheel. And so the more broad range of skills that you have, like the more things that you could bring from other disciplines. So I was actually able to learn straps really, really quickly because I had a very high level of knowledge coming from the strength and conditioning world that like Mm -hmm. most other straps artists don't.
0: Mm, there's this learning by doing once you once your fingers get almost crushed once you learn very quickly and it's almost yeah. like sometimes you need to put yourself in the deep end a little bit to be able to truly go for what you want without that fear because you can trust in yourself to have learned the lesson
1: oh yeah absolutely and sometimes it just requires you to fall and you ask yourself what's the worst thing that could happen and you fall enough times, you learn. It's like it's not that bad. It kind of hurts. It might take you out for a few days, but it's fine. So my birthday is tomorrow, and I. Uh, most people will show the highlights of their year. Um, I've put together my best fails, like just a blooper reel of all the times that I've just absolutely eaten shit while on the wheel or on my straps, and that's just gonna go on my Instagram tomorrow.
0: I love that, celebrating all of the eating shit in order to celebrate the progress that you've made. Yeah, because
1: if you're not failing, catastrophically sometimes, you're really not taking risks and you're not pushing the envelope, and it requires Mm. you pushing yourself to that red line every once in a while to push your capability, because then Mm. that forces your body and your mind to adapt.
0: Well, that's all collectively. Just wish Clayton a happy birthday thank and you. thank him for being here on his birthday <laughs> eve. So you've clearly acquired so many different skills. And we haven't even tapped into the less physical ones. Yeah. What is it like to pick up so many different things and what is your personal system or process for all this skill acquisition?
1: Yeah. Um It kind of depends on what resources I have in front of me. So Mm -hmm. one of the skills that I developed, this like meta learning skill along the way, is to work with experts that aren't expert coaches. And so what I mean is like, you can go to an NFL player or some elite athlete and ask them, how do you do something? and they're going to give you a terrible answer because chances are they've always been good at it and so like they have no sense of how to build up to that skill. One of my friends here that trains with me is a circuslay acrobat and she could casually just show up and just like get into a one arm handstand, no problem. And if I asked her like literally how, she would have no way of explaining it to me. <laughs> She's like, "I don't know. I've been doing this since I was 6." Right? And so One skill that I've developed is like how do I coax that knowledge out of an expert Practitioner that isn't necessarily an expert coach because expert coaches are actually way harder to find than expert practitioners Mm. Someone who's good at teaching is a completely separate skill set from being good at doing the thing Mm. and the basis of that is finding the structure of that discipline so for cooking for example that's something that everyone can relate to cooking has a wide variety of skills whether that's uh, knife skills managing heat like timing across different dishes braising techniques marinations fermentation all these things are like completely independent of each other and form the skill tree of all the possible skills right? And then from there, you can assign a structure to it. Like some things are easier than others, and some things are actually prerequisites of another thing, right? Mm. And so you look for ways of practicing each of those independently by removing all of the other elements. So if I want to just work on a particular dish, but I don't feel like working on um, my knife skills I'll use a mandolin which is in of itself like terrifying like every every chef has a, has a story where they remove a part of their thumb but that's an option that I have if I don't feel like doing dishes I've spent the last several months eating off of bamboo plates because I don't want to do <laughs> dishes and I'm just optimizing for the 45 minutes I have to cook dinner at night <laughs> And so you try to remove everything else so that you can work on that one thing and then from there once you're good at each of the individual blocks you learn to combine them So you're forming this language, like you figure out what all the words are, you figure out some of the grammatical structure, and then you start putting words together into sentences in new and interesting ways. And then over time, you can build, you can make poetry, you can write a novel, you can take all those individual blocks and put them together in novel ways.
0: It almost sounds like you're quantifying or making mathematical the process of mastering something.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think every single discipline can be broken down into into its subcomponents. So something I'm working on right now for Fount is figuring out our exercise and nutrition programming. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, if you think about a diet, like there's the Mediterranean diet, there's keto, there's paleo, intermittent fasting, Atkins, all of them, like, they're different things. But when you really think about it, diet just comes down to three elements. And that is macronutrients, so how much protein, carbs, and fat you're intaking, micronutrients, you know what are the individual chemicals that you're intaking, and timing. And all diets are essentially different forms of alterations of these three variables. So paleo is primarily my, uh, micronutrient, like I am eliminating legumes, soy, nightshades, grains. Yeah. Um, intermittent fasting, I am just messing with timing. Um, keto, I am just going higher fat, lower protein, lower carb. And I can mix and match those to like figure out what is an optimal diet for an individual. But when you're standing at the base of the mountain, you know, that end diet seems really mysterious, but when you know exactly what steps to take, it becomes very simple.
0: I almost felt myself just relax into that a little bit because there are so many different ways of doing something and you just simplified it and put it into a digestible way to consume it and break it all down.
1: Yeah, and like exercise is very, very similar. There's a few domains that you mess with, whether that's strength, speed, size, um, I call it sustain, so like cardiovascular, or muscular endurance, and like skill. And there's different ways of working within each of those, like whether that's like, you know, um, heavy resistance training for strength, plyometrics for mm-hmm. speed, um, like bodybuilding style or for size. And you can mix and match those depending on what your goals are in making each of these domains better. And it becomes very simple. And then the way you progress through them, the way that you go from movement to movement, how much rest you take, there's really good research there. So there's not a ton of mystery. It just takes either the willingness to figure out that knowledge or the ability to find someone who can think about it for you or the compromise in between, you know, finding someone who does do that and then you working with them to figure out what works for you.
0: Mm. So multiple levers you can pull on. And you mentioned something, the word um, mystify or mysterious, I think. And I'm very intrigued by that notion of data and research and science demystifying the mystical. We've seen this over the course of history with things that used to be like magic for us. Now, not only do we understand them, but we've harnessed them. And we've been able Mm -hmm. to leverage them in a variety of ways. What has been your experience Uh, in all of your different roles with machine learning and data science with the, the process of making mysteries measurable and demystifying them?
1: I think it's always comes down to understanding the atomic bits of the discipline. Like whether that's an advancement in AI or a physical feat. I know that once something has been done, I know for a fact that it is possible. And therefore there is a path from me sitting here to there and it just becomes a game of figuring out like what is the optimal path to there? What are the things that I have to work on in order to um, make progress in that direction? What deficiencies do I, do I have? What resources do I need? Like I, I think I referenced the Bannister effect the first time we talked where Sir Roger Bannister first man to run a four minute mile. After that moment, like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like, everyone knows that a four-minute mile is possible, and now kids in high school do it. And yes, of course, training methodologies have gotten better. The genetic selection pool for runners has gotten better, but that power of belief is a really big component for understanding that something is within reach. So, like, my, my toxic trait is that, like, if I see that something is possible, probably, like... Without a lot of great backing, we'll believe that I can probably do that. (laughs) And so, like, a lot of my training is like, huh, that really cool, dangerous looking thing on Instagram is what I'm going to spend this afternoon doing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love how I asked a question about data and it went to the power of belief because it's such a a topic of popularity right now. Mm. How has the power of belief shaped your life?
1: Well, like, kind of going back to it, data is just another lens to view the world Mm. and it's its own language and how you can like it becomes its own sense and so if i via data perceive that something is possible then that gives me the same sense as like you know me seeing it or me hearing it Mm. it's just your capability of understanding that data to uh, internalize that belief
0: Mm. and like
1: yeah and like that power of belief is what powers most human achievement, a lot of people, like explorers, inventors, people look at them like they're crazy because they don't believe that what they're trying to do is possible. And they kind of have to be crazy because they don't know if that thing that they're trying to do is possible, but they're going to go for it with everything they have anyway, because that's the only way to get to their goal. Uh. So you kind of have to be a little bit irrational in order to push performance and push capability and like push humanity.
0: Ooh, I have chills right now because there's something really powerful in what you just said. It's like in order to be able to push yourself to discover what is, you have to believe that it's possible. So tell me a little bit more about Fount and the work that you're doing there that's along these lines.
1: Sure. So Fount was born out of research done by our founder um, when he was at the Department of Defense, primarily trying to make Navy SEALs, so some of the top performers in the world better on the ground. But from there, he realized like there's a ton of that work that once you have very individualized custom programs using the best of science, that can apply to the tens of thousands of grunts out there. And while giving talks at conferences, executives would come over to him and like, wait, how how do I get these things for myself? And so that's where Fount came from, is developing customized, targeted interventions for individuals to increase their performance. And whether that's how you look, feel, or perform, There's ways of getting to each of your goals. And so my work we found is primarily discovering what is it along the modalities available to us, whether that's supplementation, nutrition, meditation, breath work, exercise, nutrition, sleep, light temperature, just like along the full gamut. What can work for individuals and how do we find the ways to target the interventions that work for them? Because all things in the same way, like all diets probably work for some subset of the population. All exercise programs probably work for a certain group of people. And the real key is figuring out how to match that group of people to that intervention so that they see the optimal benefit. And that can really only be done through experimentation. So data can only tell you so much, but trial and error, which you know for me involves falling a lot and like the occasional concussion, is the only way to figure out like what actually works for you.
0: Mm, the combination of the two is the magic spot. Yeah. In terms of performance optimization, there's this big culture that we have around hustle, go, 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 push, push, push. I think there's a way to balance the optimization of your performance with also listening to yourself. Mm -hmm. What is your take on this and how do you balance that out?
1: I think any sort of broad strokes, uh, like one size fits all advice is inherently wrong. And... I think people are losing the sight of, like, where does rest and introspection come into play? So for example, for my exercise programming, I wear, well, actually multiple wearables because I work for a human forms company, I have to test them. But all of them tell me my heart rate variability, which is a measure of autonomic stress. Mm -hmm. And I know that if my autonomic stress is super high, I'm not going to recover well from workouts. And therefore, there's no point in me pushing super hard and I should actually benefit from taking a rest day. Versus if my recovery is in the green, then I know that I can push myself harder and I'll see the benefit of that additional training. And if I were any good at actually listening to my body, I would be able to just get a sense of that on my own. But I'm not, so I have those devices. Um, and the same thing with like longer term training plans. Like any good training plan has an accumulation buildup to the peak of performance. And then like a shut off of that and you start back lower, higher than where you started previously, but then you build right back up. And so there doesn't need to be that constant always on mentality, like rest and like that recovery and that rebuild is actually critically important for long term progress in like a two week thing. Like you could push yourself super hard to the red line, but over the course of years, you won't see benefit doing that. And we see that Uh all over the place, whether that's diet or size or even just work. Like people burn out. That's a real thing.
0: Mm -hmm. You just gave an example of something that I've never really thought about before, which is how technology can be not just a distraction to pull us away from ourselves, but a tool to help us connect and look at ourselves when we've kind of forgotten how to or don't really have the path to that anymore.
1: Yeah, I find that like the best tools, at least for me, are the ones that give me some measure of biofeedback. So for meditation, I have ADHD and I've always been terrible at sitting still for meditation. But I've used the Muse headband and that kind of taught me, uh, based on the biofeedback, like what is the state that I'm going for in a meditative session? And now I can reach that state and understand like, am I or am I not in that state uh, with or without the headband. Uh, same thing with like, continuous glucose monitoring. Like... Yeah, I kind of have a sense like I feel a little bit shitty after eating like a big bowl of pasta and it's a lot easier to see when I have an app on my phone with a, that's connected to a little glucose monitor that tells me like my insulin levels are super high and that's why you feel like crap. And then from there I could calibrate my own senses to that hard data. Same thing with heart rate variability, same thing with actually heart rate when I do breath work. So having those devices to calibrate your own senses is actually super valuable. Do I think that you should like live and die off of them for forever? Probably not. But certain things for me, HRV. Like I'll, I have a bad habit of pushing myself to redline for training all the time, so I need a like a quantitative figure to tell me not to but you know that's a that's a problem for my therapist
0: (laughs) and that goes back to what you said about the custom planning like people need to know their own blind spots and learn how Mm -hmm. to leverage the tools they have in a way that suits them Mm. you mentioned something last time that i found really interesting and that was uh, a structured flow state could you tell us more about that and how you get into it
1: yeah, so I actually structure my entire week around one session. So every Sunday afternoon, I put all of my hardest training um, in within a state where I'm in flow. And I don't mean like lowercase f flow or like, you know, the spiritual people talk about it as like, you're one with the environment and yourself. I mean, like, capital F proper noun flow of you have the sense of time dilation, you have complete focus, you have ease. Like there is really solid research behind that. Mm-hmm. And so to achieve that state, you need to have the right feedback mechanisms. You need the right level of challenge. So if something's too easy, you're going to get bored. If something's too hard, like you're not getting enough wins to get that flow state going. And so finding that balance along with the right feedback mechanism for you is critically important, to achieving that state. And so Sunday afternoons, I throw myself at the hardest tricks that I've been trying to figure out. And that whether that's on straps or cereal, like I use the cereal to actually achieve the flow state because I'm able to do you know hundreds of reps within 20 minutes of different tricks and just get immediate feedback. It's like, am I falling off the wheel or not? Did I do the trick smoothly? And then I take that concentration, I take it over to straps, which is a lot more physically demanding. And I work on like, honestly, the most dangerous tricks that I have at that point in time. However, that also means the rest of my week has to be structured around that. So that means if I do that Sunday, Monday, my body and brain are spent. I need to recover from that. Mm -hmm. So what modalities can I use to recover so that Tuesday I could get back to normal training? Wednesday is my suck day. (laughs) So that means I will throw myself at things and fail over and over and over again and i have to have a little bit just like a healthy amount of self loathing to know that i hate this feeling of failure and i want it to not be there and i want to be better because over the course of the week like you know i'll train and then sunday comes again and i'll remember that feeling and i remember the things that Mm. i've been trying to do and i will go for it like that and every major advancement i made in my discipline has been Due to that Sunday flow state. Because when you're in flow, like let's say you're 10% better than you normally are, you're able to overreach a little bit. Well, performing at 110% will make your baseline, you know, let's say 1% better, right? And so that means like your baseline state is getting 1% better each time you do that. Well, 52 weeks in a year, compound interest, that's about 66%. And what would you pay to be 66% better at something? Probably Mm -hmm. a lot. But yeah. flow isn't all like that happy, like, you know, full concentration, ease state. There has to be an element of suck in there for flow to be reached.
0: Ooh, there's something very powerful about having some suck and some challenge in that to expand your capacity. Absolutely. Mm. What happens in your body in that flow state?
1: It's like primarily, I think, a neurological phenomenon, um, like Steve Kotlin, talks about it a lot where you basically have full concentration into a given activity and you see this a lot like with with video games actually because video games are purpose built to get people into flow state because if you're in the right difficulty range you're not like plowing down enemies and not dying but if you are in the right frame of mind you're performing at a much higher level your reflexes are better your attention is very squarely centered on something and The effect you feel from that is kind of tunnel vision, laser focus, time dilation. I don't know the specific neural mechanisms behind that off the top of my head, but there's decent research into saying this is probably real, and you see this in elite performers everywhere, all in the world. The coolest mm. bits of research is seeing team flow. So how do groups of people achieve flow states together? And a lot of that is a function of both mission focus and trust. But my uh, my founder can go into that a lot further than I can. But <laughs> with that flow state, you're able to achieve beyond what you are normally capable of because you have utter and full concentration into what you are doing.
0: Mm. And presence. things
1: come easily. Yeah presence, but also that like feeling of ease.
0: Yeah. If someone were looking to expand their capacity right now and there was something they could do starting today or tomorrow, what would you recommend?
1: Ooh. So it's hard to give any broad strokes advice. I think mm-hmm. part of that is just finding your deficiencies and finding what fears you have, what is blocking you from performing. And whether that is a mental constraint or a physical constraint that's going to differ for everyone, but addressing those weaknesses while also like finding what are the things that you're great at and pushing on that. Because like, if you bring everyone's weaknesses up, and I like this is my philosophy around hiring as well. If I bring everyone's weaknesses up to an acceptable level, then I have a team full of mediocre performers.
0: Mm.
1: I would rather have a bunch of people who are experts in what they do kind of suck at administrative work or don't to up to email super well than to have everyone who's really good at following up to emails but can't take it to 120% every once in a while.
0: Mm, you've just touched on something that used to pain me so much in the corporate world where yeah. I saw that so many people were expected to be the generalists, like sufficient at so much and yet yeah. not allowed to really flourish in their, I guess you could call it like their zone of genius or just what they're good at.
1: Yeah. And I think for everyone, there's a lot of crossover and skills. So you could take something that you're good at and you take, if you take it to another discipline, you'd be surprised how applicable that is. I have a friend who was an ex-professional ballerina and I recently got her started in a circus, specifically dance trapeze. And she's basically took those skills and just had her first performance and was amazing. Like her lines were perfect. She like, Learn to spin, learn all the inversions and all that stuff that was relatively new, but took her skills from dancing and like was completely applicable to that style. Because also once you have that expertise in something else, like you bring your own style, you bring a unique style to this new discipline. So like when I started playing rugby, uh, I came from like a very heavy, like strength and conditioning background. So I had very, very strong legs and I was able to push super hard and like, you know, generally just have powerful legs. And so that changed the way that I played rugby so that I wasn't trying to like have great ball skills. Like I wasn't I wasn't great at that. Like you throw a ball at me and just like brick hands but I pick a ball off the ground or you know, I tackle someone, I will get the ball out of their hands, even if I have to just throw them over my shoulder. And so focusing on what you're good at can make you still a high performer and will make up for those deficiencies if you have the right team to support you.
0: Mm. And we are never truly starting from scratch. Everything we've done before has been a building block in some way and might serve us in our next skill acquisition or expansion or thing that we do in ways that we can't even fathom right now. Oh, yeah. How can people connect with you after the show?
1: Um, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. Otherwise, check out Fount. Um, Lots of great stuff there. We're going to start publishing materials on understanding the subtleties of that heavy, heavy handed advice that everyone gives, we're gonna start breaking that down. Like what are antioxidants doing and why isn't it necessarily good to take them all the time?
0: And who should check out Fountain? Cause I know you have a, a high performance program, I believe. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, so anyone who's looking to look, feel, and perform better, right now our price point is fairly high because it is a concierge coaching program, but we are launching products around like jet lag. So if you have international trips coming up and you like to fly business class, then like absolutely check out our jet lag product. Otherwise, for our coaching business, it's about $3,700 a month for the first four months where we will run you through a sequence of experiments to find what works for you. And then from there, go down to about a $750-a-month a support program where um, basically you will continue to run experiments kind of pushing your performance incrementally into the future as long as you want.
0: Sweet. And I'm so glad you brought up the jet lag because last time we spoke, you said, we have figured out how to cure jet lag. And I said, what? How is this possible? So it's so exciting to know that that feature will be hitting the market soon.
1: Yeah, we're going to go to direct to consumer with that. And it's actually a really exciting product because jet lag is one of those things that people just kind of accept when they travel. And you have to sometimes ask yourself in that irrational way, like, why? Isn't there something we could do about this? And it turns out we can. And so with FlyKit, we can send 90% of the population because nothing works for everyone. So about 90% of the population anywhere in the world boots on the ground. No, no jet lag. You'll be able to go to bed at the right bedtime as soon as you land.
0: I look forward to this. Yeah. Clayton, if you could leave the listeners with just one message, what would it be?
1: I would say to take anything that you want to learn or are already good at and understand the structure of it. I think it's a really invaluable exercise to be to be able to take a huge discipline, whether that's cooking, chemistry, code, circus, and be able to break it down to parts. Because one, that helps solidify your understanding of that specific language. And two, it helps others. Because like, if I had someone that could break down all the elements of rugby for me while I was learning to play, that would have saved me so much time. And by helping teach and helping share that knowledge, you make the community better, you make everyone better. And I think it all comes down to that initial breakdown of the structure of all the sub skills.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun and I've learned yeah, thank a Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be kept in the loop on new episodes like it, follow us on Instagram at abundantly curious or join the email list at the link in our show description and show notes. And if you've got extra love to give, which we always welcome, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, when we open our minds, we open to new possibilities.